Well, good morning. Good morning. I think God does a miracle each week when before worship it feels a little empty and then during worship it slowly gets a little bit more full and more full. But we are so uh, glad and thankful that you're here with us this morning. Uh, Again, my name is Pastor Ben. I am the youth pastor here. Uh, Many people here just call me Ben, which is totally fine. Some of our younger students call me Benji and don't worry, they'll get what's coming to them. Uh, But we are just excited uh, that you chose to be with us here on a Sunday morning. Uh, I want to just take a second and just show you my family because I like to show them off a little bit. Uh, this is me, uh, my wife, and my sweet baby, whose name is Noah. Uh, we got the opportunity to go to a pumpkin patch uh, just uh, a couple days ago. Uh, he got to pump- pick out his first pumpkin, and he's only six and a half months old, so we picked out the pumpkin and told him, that's your pumpkin. Uh, but he got to pick out a pumpkin. Uh, we got to eat some of those donuts with cinnamon. Does anybody love those donuts that you get? Yeah. Does anybody have a dozen of those donuts sitting on their counter at home still? Okay, just me. Uh, Yeah, I love those donuts. Uh, But we got the opportunity to do that as a family. Uh, And we, uh, that's who we are. That's my wife, Kylie. She is a local dance teacher. Uh, So she teaches all kinds of dance at a dance studio to uh, young kids, middle school, high school age kids, and even sometimes adults. Um, I'm the youth pastor, so that means I get to work with our middle school, our high school, and our college age kids. Yep, one of my high school kids just pointed and laughed at me, which is helpful. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we're just thankful. Uh, we're thankful that <clears throat> because of the giving here at Oakwood, we're able to be here. Uh, we're able to live in the community. We're able to spend our time uh, committed to ministry here at Oakwood. And we just want to stop and just say thank you. Because without you guys, without you, this church, we wouldn't have the opportunity to do that. Uh, we might be who knows where. But we're not. We're here with you guys at Oakwood because you guys are generous uh, and able to provide for us in that way. Now, last time I showed you my family, back by popular demand, is our sweet puppy Moses. Yes, usually Moses gets more awes than I do, which is fine. This is Moses. He's a bundle of joy. Uh, if you're at our um, trunk or treat next week, there's a good chance that you'll get a chance to uh, meet him. He might lick you, so if you don't like getting licked in the face, stay away from Moses. Uh, but this is our little family. We, uh, we live in Goodrich, and we're just thankful uh, to be here. Uh, I want to take a moment uh, and just kind of recap what we've learned in this series on Romans. Like I said, Petey is away uh, at Barakel with some of our men here at the church. Uh, so let's just take a second and walk through kind of what we've learned. First, uh, Petey walked us through the fact that all have sinned. Uh, raise your hand if you've never sinned before. Uh, just kidding. Uh, Paul demonstrates in uh, Paul or Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned. The week after that, uh, P.D. taught us that Paul declares that we can be justified through faith in Jesus. Paul demands where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And lastly, Paul decides to confront the problem that the church in Rome was seeming to deal with, and it was, let's just continue to sin so that grace might abound. Does anybody remember PD's answer from last week? By no means. Certainly not. Down, down, down through the translations. To our somewhat elegant Pastor Don, nope. Sin must certainly, we must not continue sinning so that grace may abound. 
Today we're going to be picking up uh, the book of Romans in chapter 7. Uh, so if you guys want to turn there, you guys can meet us there in a little bit. Um, but first, I, we're just going to share with you the big idea, and I want to share a little bit of um, one of my not-so-proud things. So the uh, big idea today is just simply grace is greater. Grace is greater. If you guys go home today with one thing, uh, if you guys are sitting at Red Naps later and the waitress comes up to you and you say, oh, we've been at church, which you're totally going to do, and then they say, oh, what'd you learn? You're going to say, grace is greater. And again, we're going to be looking in Romans 7 today. Now, uh, I want to share with you guys a spoiler, so I'm going to give you guys an official spoiler warning. Uh, If you don't like spoilers, you can avert your eyes, you can try to plug your ears, but here is the spoiler that I'm sharing with you today. You are not perfect. Everybody say, what? Yes, you are not perfect. Uh, I like to think that I'm perfect, but if you talk to my wife, my puppy, or my sweet baby, they will share with you quite promptly that I am, in fact, not perfect, just like all of you messed up people. The spoiler this morning is that you are not perfect. And I don't know about you, but for me, I struggle to give people grace. And you say, Ben, you're a pastor. Of course you give people grace. No, not really. When I am in the line at Meyer and I'm in the self-checkout line, and there's that huge sign that says 12 items only, and then the person in front of me has a cart that has at least a thousand items, I struggle to give that person grace. I'm sitting there tapping my foot. I'm like, oh my goodness, can they not read? Do these people have no clue that this is the self-checkout idol and you're only supposed to have 12 items? When I'm driving down the road, and uh, I'm a perfect driver, but other people are not so much perfect drivers, and when they cut me off when I'm driving, I generally struggle to give people the grace that I probably should give them. Anybody want to be honest and say, yes, Pastor Ben, I struggle with grace sometimes too? Okay. There's a few honest people in the crowd, and I appreciate that. But I struggle to give people grace. And ultimately, the truth that Paul is trying to uh, convey to the church in Rome through chapter 7 is that simply grace is greater. Grace is a powerful tool. Grace from God is one of the most powerful things in the entire universe. And yet I, a pastor, someone who works full-time in ministry, struggles to give others grace. And this is where I want us to approach the book of Romans from this morning. So let's pray as we uh, continue in worship. Father, we pray specifically for Petey uh, as he is off speaking at Barakel. We just ask that you would uh, continue to empower him to spread your gospel and spread your word this morning. Father, we're so thankful for Pastor Don and all he does here at the church. Uh, We just pray that as they travel today, uh, the men from Oakwood as well as Petey, that they would just travel safely. And ultimately, Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we read through Romans chapter 7, we just ask that you be present with us. Uh, We ask that you might open our heart in a new way this morning. Uh, And ultimately, Father, that our time here would be glorifying to you. Father, it's in your Son's precious name that we pray. Amen. So as we pick up the book of Romans, we have to just make one thing very clear. And it's simply this. Romans, the church in Rome, is a church divided. 
Paul, as he's writing to this church in Rome, it becomes very clear that there are people who think one thing in the church, and then there's a whole other group of people who have a different perspective and think a completely different way. It becomes very clear that the people in the church in Rome are not seeing eye to eye on every single issue that the church is trying to figure out. And I feel for Paul because I have no idea what that would be like to be at a church where people don't see eye to eye on every single issue. I I really feel for Paul. I I can't even comprehend what that would be like. I, I just don't know. But this is what, hopefully you sense the sarcasm in my voice, this is where Paul finds the church in Rome. They're asking questions like, how should we live now that Jesus is gone? Now that he's been taken back up into heaven, how, how are we even supposed to live? What are we supposed to do? They're asking questions, is the law still applicable? About half of the church in Rome was previous people who were Jewish people, and half of the people in the church of Rome were Gentile believers, pagan believers, people who didn't follow the Jewish law and the Jewish code. So they're asking this question, how are we supposed to fuse uh, this Roman world with the Jewish world? Are the laws still applicable? How does that work for this new church? They're asking questions like, why do we still struggle with sin sometimes if we've met Jesus, if we've followed Jesus, if we have the Holy Spirit inside of us? And Paul finds the church in Rome. They, half the group thinks one thing, half the group thinks the other thing. If you've ever done a group project, you know exactly what that's like. You have one party that's like, oh, we're going to do it this way and we're going to do it that way. And then you have the other part of the group and they're going to do it this way and this way. And then you end up doing it all by yourself because you don't want to deal with either side of the group. But this is where Paul finds the church. It's a church divided. So let's pick up in Romans chapter 7. And we're going to start in verse 4 together. It says this. So, my brothers and sisters... You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to whom, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what's once bound us, we have been released from the law, So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul makes it very clear at the very start of this chapter in Romans that we as new followers of Jesus are dead to the law law and alive in Christ. Last week, right here on the stage, we got to celebrate baptism. And PD shared that it was the image of Jesus dying and being resurrected. And we as Christ followers, we as people who follow Jesus, in the same way, act out the death and resurrection of Jesus to say that we are a part of his family. We are a follower of Jesus. And at the beginning of this chapter, Paul is making it very clear, the same analogy, that if we are someone who follows Jesus, we have died to to the law, and we have been raised alive with Christ. He uses the same sort of illustration that we think of in baptism. If we're dunking Paul under the water in this case, it means that he has died to the law, and as we raise him back up, he is alive with Christ. 
And this is one of the first things he wants his church to know in Romans. Secondly, he makes it very clear that we're going to be living our life and you're either going to see fruit for God or fruit for death. As we follow Jesus and as we start to experience his work and the relationship that we have with him in our life, you're going to be able to look at your life and you're going to see fruit for life or you're going to see fruit for death. You're going to see that your life brings fruit that is uh, life-bringing or you're going to see that your life brings fruit that leads to death. And ultimately, what, G- or what Paul is trying to teach in this book of Romans is that as we are dead to the law and alive to Christ, our life should very similarly be dead to those things that bring death and alive to the good fruit that God brings for us in our life. And I think for us, it can be really challenging if we look at our life and we don't start to see this good fruit. If you are a follower of Jesus and maybe you've been following him for some time, you should be able to look at your life and you should be able to see, okay, in the past, this is the way I lived and this was the result. I had addictions. Uh, I, I chose to do things that I knew were against God's will for my life. And ultimately, those things lead to death. And when we start to follow Jesus, we should be able to similarly look at our life and say, oh my goodness, now that I, I have Jesus, now that I have the Spirit inside of me, this is the fruit in my life that is evidence of that. And Paul makes it clear that if we ch- are truly dead to sin, the fruit of our life will change. Similarly, he says that we are now serving in the Spirit, not the law. We are serving in the Spirit, not the law. If we follow Jesus, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have this earthly tent. We have this body that is of the flesh, but in us we have something greater. And when we serve, as we follow Jesus, the good fruit that comes in our life is fruit by the Spirit, not by the law. The law itself cannot produce the good fruit, but the the, the Spirit can. We'll continue reading in uh, verse 7. So it says this. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what uh, coveting really was if if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So Paul answers this question, is the law sinful? If we're no longer ruled by the law, was law sinful all the time? And he makes it very clear, no. If PD was on the stage, he'd say, nope. The law itself is not sin, but sin uses the law to create opportunities for sin. 
The law promised life, but it convicted me to death. This week, as I was thinking through an illustration to help understand this, I, I thought of a dartboard. Is anybody really good at darts? Yeah, anybody? All right, I've got some challenges later. Um, I thought about hanging this on a wall today and actually throwing darts, but I'm not that good, so I didn't want to embarrass myself. But the idea that I wanted us to think of as a church, when we think of the law and what Paul is trying to teach in Romans 7, is kind of like this dartboard. When you play darts, there's very strict boundaries. There's zones that are in, there are zones that are out, there are places that you want to hit on the board, there are places that you don't want to hit on the board, and ultimately when you're playing darts, you have areas that you're trying to hit. And similarly, the law gives structure to how we're supposed to live. It gives us boundaries. It gives us areas where we're supposed to be. It gives us things that we're not necessarily supposed to do. It shows us God's heart on how we should live. And for the Jewish people, they had so many laws. I mean, there are books and books in the Bible that just tell us about the laws that God has given to his people. And what Paul is trying to say is that if we flip this dartboard around, before the law, Paul didn't have the boundaries. He didn't have the framework and the understanding of how to play the game we call life. So if we're playing darts and we're just throwing darts at random corkboard, it's not too fun, is it? We're just randomly trying to throw it. It's like, oh, you kind of hit in the middle. Good for you. Awesome. High five. But what Paul is saying is that the law has given him a framework for life. And this law that was given by God has given him the answer for how he should live. The law itself was not sinful, but the law itself, if there is an inbounds, it creates the opportunity for an out-of-bounds. If we're going to stretch this analogy as far as it can be, if we're playing darts as a church together and, and we're throwing the darts at the dartboard, if the law is not in place, if these boundaries are not in place, then we don't know where we want to hit. So Paul is saying that uh, this boundary that he's been given, sin isn't the, th- or, uh, the law is not the thing that causes sin, but the law shows him where the sin boundaries are. And ultimately, he comes to the conclusion the law itself did not bring death for Paul, but it was by the law that he was convicted to death. It becomes pretty clear for Paul that if he holds his life up against what the law asks of him, he's not going to measure up. It becomes pretty clear to Paul that if he was in an actual courtroom and they were to read all of the laws that God had given to the people of Israel and they compared them to how he actually lived his life, he could be convicted of, in this case, death because that is the penalty for sin. And Paul is making it very clear that the law itself is actually holy and righteous because it was given to us by God. But unfortunately, it's the law that proves that he is a sinner and worthy of death. Verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. If we continue reading in verse 13, it says this, 
Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized at sin, it is used, it has used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not do, do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do, I do not want to do. This kept me on doing. This I kept on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. That is about as close to Pastor Ben's singing you'll ever hear. <laughs> do 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 Did the law bring death? No. But it pointed out that he was worthy of it. He says the law is spiritual and I am of the flesh. And ultimately, Paul recognizes that there is a war within him. There is a war within him. And ultimately, I hope that we as believers can understand and resonate with this war that Paul is talking about. Because he says, in somewhat clear language, that he struggles to do the things that he knows he should, and the things that he knows that he shouldn't, he often does. And I want to highlight this war word because uh, Paul isn't accepting this and just saying, you know, sometimes I mess up and that's just the way life is. Sometimes I'm not perfect. See, Mom, I'm not perfect. And, you know, that's okay. God loves me anyway. The point that Paul is trying to make in this passage is that he hates the fact that he's not able to maintain the life that he knows he should. There is a literal war that is happening within him where his flesh wants to do one thing and his spirit and the Holy Spirit is convicting him to do another thing and ultimately he is torn up inside because sometimes he can't live up to the standard God has placed on his life and in his life. And this is a really scary reality check for us, friends, because ultimately, if we as Christians have accepted that there is just going to be sin in our life and that we're kind of okay with that, that doesn't line up with what Paul's talking about here. If there is sin in our life that is repetitive, if there is sin in our life that is habitual, if we have just accepted that, you know, once a month on Friday nights I go out and I drink too much and that's just kind of how life is, if we have just accepted that it, it's okay if me and my girlfriend do X, Y, and Z because, you know, it's not that bad and it's not as bad as what other people do, um, and we've just kind of accepted that, then we are treading on really dangerous ground. 
Because Paul says that when he messes up, when the things of his life do not align with the ways that he knows God wants him to live, there is a war waging within him. The Spirit has convicted him in such a way that he hates that he does sin. He hates that he messes up. He hates the fact that he can't live up to the standard that God has asked him to live up to. So if you find yourself in a perpetual cycle where you've just accepted that there is some sin in your life and you've kind of become okay with that, I would just challenge you that you need to check where your relationship with Jesus is. You need to look at your life and you need to take a second and you need to be honest with yourself. Because if that conviction is gone, if that war is no longer waging inside of you, that should be a really large red flag. That should be a huge stop sign that says stop and take a second and think about where your relationship with Jesus is. Paul finishes this chapter and it says this in verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against me, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a, uh, a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, I am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Paul finally comes to this conclusion in this conversation on the law, and he says, okay, the law is good and holy. The law is put in place by God, but ultimately we as believers are dead to the law because the law was fulfilled its purpose in the sense that it showed that we're all sinners. Remember our spoiler alert, you are not perfect. Some of us are going to go home and say, sweetie, the pastor agrees with you. <laughs> You are not perfect. And Paul is recognizing this and he's saying, the law, if I compare myself to it, has convicted me to death. Because the punishment for sin is death. So he asks the question, if I am unable to escape this earthly uh, vessel that is so tied to flesh and sin uh, come through Adam in the book of Genesis, then who is going to save me? And ultimately, we get to sing the song that we have victory in Jesus. Because in verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Each of us are imperfect, but God sent his Son to the world to live a perfect life. To, to keep the law perfectly. To be blameless and righteous. So that when he died on the cross, it was no longer uh, our, us who had to pay the price for sin, but it was him who took that price of sin on him. His death on the cross allowed us to no longer be held up against the law and be saying, uh, well, Ben, look at the law. Look at all the ways that your life doesn't match up with it. He gives us the opportunity to say, the law has now died with Christ. 
And we are now raised to new life with Jesus. And Jesus pays the price for that law that we are unable to keep. I hope that you have victory in Jesus this morning. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christ follower, if, if you're still looking at an eternity separated from God, I would just challenge you guys to reach out to one of our elders here at the church. Reach out to one of our leaders. We would love to have a conversation with you about what a relationship with Jesus looks like. So I, I want us to consider some things as we close today because uh, I think that this passage in the book of Romans, uh, it, it should change somewhat of how we live. It, it should change how we live our life. Firstly, we need to accept the fact that we're not perfect. This takes a little bit of humility for some of us like me. Not every decision you make is a good decision. Uh, if you look at your life and you compare it to God's standards, there's always going to be places that you fall short and there should be a war waging with inside of you because of it. But you can point at the person to your left and the right, and I'm not going to tell you to actually do it, but you can point at anyone in this room and say, you are not perfect, and that is a true statement. And I think, unfortunately, we as a Christian church, a capital C church, often take the position that once we meet Jesus, once we start to follow him, your life should look like you're perfect. You should never make a mistake. You should uh, never struggle with anything in your life because you have Jesus. And unfortunately, even if we have Jesus, even if we're following Jesus, he has given us freedom from sin. He has given us uh, the, ability, the ability to no longer be a slave to sin, but we are still going to be imperfect on this side of heaven. So firstly, we have to accept the grace that comes with a relationship with Jesus. That war waging within you, uh, it shouldn't be a war of guilt. It shouldn't be a war of shame. It should be a war of conviction. And equally, that war should come to the conclusion that you have grace from God. Secondly, we need to accept that Jesus paid the price for our sin. I think many of us, and maybe if you're like Pastor Ben, you're similar in this way, uh, you like to try to pay the price for sin yourself. If we turn our relationship into Jesus with like a checklist, where it's like, okay, as long as I read my Bible today and I uh, pray today and I say please and thank you uh, when I'm at Chick-fil-A and I do 10 other things that I'm supposed to do, and then I am living in a perfect relationship with Jesus. And ultimately, if that is all our relationship with Jesus is, is just a checklist, just a thing that we're trying to check off, we're trying to pay that price for sin again. I would challenge you today and this week, are you in a relationship with Jesus? Are you actually following him? Do you spend time with Jesus just because you get to? Or is it an obligation? We need to accept that Jesus paid the price for our sin and we never can. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. That doesn't mean we shouldn't read our Bible. That doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, go to church. But what it does mean is that Jesus paid the price and we get to enjoy the gift. That relationship with Jesus is a part of that gift. The grace that he gives us is a part of that gift and it's meant to be enjoyed. The law was not sufficient to save us. 
We should celebrate the fact that Jesus kept the law perfectly. And lastly, we need to accept the truth and celebrate the truth that grace is greater. I'm going to invite uh, the band to join me on stage so we can close in song. But friends, there is nothing more powerful than grace in this world. Both God's grace that he has given each and every one of us that is greater than sin, that is greater than death, that is greater than the law, because we are no longer uh, bound by the law because we have been raised with Jesus. We are now sons and daughters adopted with Jesus. And ultimately, grace is the key. Because we didn't deserve it, we didn't uh, earn it, we still struggle with uh, that war that happens inside us. But the grace, of great, the grace of God is greater than anything in this world that we can struggle with. I'm going to pray for us this morning, but I would just challenge you guys just to evaluate your relationship with Jesus this week. I want you to think through, are you actually uh, in a relationship with Jesus or are you just trying to do a thousand things for him? Uh, Are you actually enjoying the grace that comes with the relationship with Jesus or are you uh, just marred in shame and in doubt? Are are you someone who gets to actually walk with Jesus or are you just someone uh, who comes to church? Because ultimately, Paul in chapter 7 is saying, hey, you can't save yourself and the law can't save you and the law has told you that you are deserving of death and there's only one way uh, for that death to be paid for outside of an eternity separated from God. And that is if we follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here this morning. We uh, once again just pray that uh, PD and the men at Barakel would be uh, able to honor you and be uh, lifted up and encouraged this weekend. Father, as we think through this book of Romans, as we spend time in chapter 7, Father, help us to understand this, this passage on the law. Help us to understand that we need to be dependent on your grace, not our ability to keep the written laws, Father. And Father, that war that wages inside of us, we just ask that you would help us to um, embrace that. Help us to understand that we are not going to be perfect as Christians, but we get to enjoy God's grace in spite of our imperfections. Father, and ultimately, as we sing and worship to you, we just want to thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.